Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guests today are Kellen Acosta and then Jillian Sakovitz and Susanna Collins. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including on-site coverage of every U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifier. That's grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription now. In segment one, Chris and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interviews with Kellen Acosta and Jillian Sakovitz and Susanna Collins in segments two and three. But let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Still recovering from a bonkers Champions League finale in Madrid. I kind of feel like the way that Paris Saint-Germain capitulated, I'm sort of inclined to believe that you see a team that just did not could not get over the finish line and that eventually Real Madrid was going to turn on the press going forward, attacking, committing numbers forward. There were moments in the first half where I'm watching it going, do they know that they're 1-0 down and then after Mbappe scores, do they know that they're 2-0 down? And eventually it seems like they all looked around and went, oh my God, we're down 2-0 in a Champions League knockout tie. We got to go here. And I think the, the way that they turned on the Jets and went forward and flew at their opposition and... The way that Paris Saint-Germain, frankly, just was unable to handle that. I, frankly, was stunned, stunned at what happened after, frankly, the second goal. But, I mean, the, the, the third goal as well, just the complete and utter lack of response. They were the ones that all of a sudden were lacking the urgency, that lacked the, you know, throw everything up against it, get everyone forward, and kind of that desperation of it. It seemed like they were just completely shell-shocked, and it reveals all the cracks that you know, we're I've been forming over the course of. I feel like every weekend PSG is one nil down in Ligue 1, and then either they come back to win, which is most weeks, or uh, sometimes they drop results. But they have not been a, go- a good team for most of the year, and I don't think that they are balanced enough to compete at this level of competition. Now, I wouldn't have said that after 150 minutes, but with a, a terrible 20-minute period, and perhaps, as you mentioned, that goalkeeping howler. Now I am. I will say, Chris, you've been on the vanguard of PSG <laughs> questioning this season. I mean, I don't know. We could go back a bunch of episodes ago in Champions League discussion and have you talking about PSG being totally unbalanced. They've got no chance to win this thing. And me being like, yeah, maybe. Yeah, they've, they've still got three tremendous attacking players in this team. Um Today's your day, man. Congrats. Um, <laughs> like, it, it, it was just, it, you know, but still, it, to me, it was so much about mistakes by PSG. I mean, like, Marquinhos just gave a great ball, Enzema, for one of the goals. And then I almost think I would say two and a half goals, mistakes by PSG, because Hakimi plays on Benzema on side when he shouldn't have. And in Benzema scores, and you know, and right after the kickoff as well, it was almost like just an utter, complete brain lock. And you know, it's crazy to me because I always think rationally that the histories of clubs over the years and decades should have no influence on how players from those clubs play in a game today, and yet you feel almost like the histories of the these clubs came into play in the second half psg and giving things away in champions league over the years and not fulfilling their opportunities and 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 you know realizing all the talent that they've they've bought and like getting the full response out of that and winning champions league and here they are out again when they've got killian mbappe maybe at the height of his powers yeah. And if you're killing Mbappe in the locker room post game and you're looking at your teammates like what are you saying? I mean, you're probably saying this isn't going to work and I'm going to go to Ra- I'm going to go suckers. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go I'm going to be Kevin Durant and join the team that just beat me. Uh I I feel like that's kind of where we're heading because again, I just don't think and and it's funny because in some ways how they've treated Mbappe along with Neymar and now Messi is part of the reason why he probably feels so comfortable in Paris, but also part of the reason why I don't think it works. I actually think one of the biggest culprits of the lack of running and lack of team discipline is Mbappe. And I'm kind of curious how, in a club that will probably demand more from him, 
how he responds to that. To hey, every once in a while we're going to ask you to press, and you're going to have to join us. Like Mbappe is is among the bottom pressing forwards in the world, and part of that is because in Paris. In some ways, the two of them, well, then now the three of them, kind of run the club. And if Mauricio Pochettino asked them to press, that's kind of not how this is going to go. Otherwise, they would, because that's how Mauricio Pochettino wants them to play. So I, I am kind of curious how that is going to change. But I, I for, from the beginning, I just feel like when other teams lose, like Manchester City lose, you know, at the very least, what they're attempting to do. Or that, like, it's just a breakdown in... The structure, not that the structure is wrong. And PSG, I think, has a top-down structure problem. They have not gone about building a club with the vast resources that they have in the right way. And to your point about that kind of Champions League blue blood, it's funny. The last new winner of the Champions League was Chelsea back in 2012. Otherwise, it's these blue bloods that do it over and over again. And in some ways, Chelsea coming up against Manchester City in the last Champions League final is proof that you really have to do a lot to climb over this mountain. That what Man City did on that day in Porto was not enough to climb the mountain and join one of the blue bloods. And that it's hard in this competition to be a new winner. And maybe this year we'll provide it. Maybe it's Man City. But... It just requires so much of these new money teams to get over this hill. And I don't know if it's the history taking the field or the weight of the competition, but there's just something about it that finding a new winner is hard. I'm glad we're actually we don't do video for this uh, podcast yet because I'm wearing a PSG Mbappe shirt right now that was the <laughs> gift of my cousin, Guillaume, who's visiting from Paris. And I watched the game with and he had this look of increasing dread on his face throughout the second half. And I, there's just a lot to talk about here. Lionel Messi. Yep. I, I don't think he's the reason PSG lost here, but I am surprised by how little of an impact he had on this game, particularly in the second half. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I have some Real Madrid fan friends, so I have this very warped sense of Messi sometimes where they're just <laughs> like, this always happens, and look, he's at it again, not coming up in a big game, and that's harsh because obviously he led the team to winning Copa America in the summer and won the Ballon d'Or for it. But this has happened a, a, a few times, and it's been a while since Lionel Messi won the Champions League or even reached the final. It's been since they won it in 2015. He, is, he will now not be in any of the last seven Champions League finals and hasn't really done enough to lift his teams at this level of the competition in a few years. And look, he has already exceeded every expectation of what you can expect out of a guy for how long he's played, the length of his career. But Paris Saint-Germain does not sign players for Ligue 1. They signed players for the Champions League. And the fact that Neymar and Messi did not really contribute a lot. Like, in some ways to me, like, the PSG seasons are the beginning of the Champions League time, which they were knocked out, and the end of the Champions League time, which they were knocked out. And you break down almost their entire campaign based off of how they perform in those 180 minutes. And the fact that they were not able to win tonight, you have to put Messi under the microscope because Messi has had a rough go of it in Paris. It, this hasn't worked. Him leaving Barcelona has not right. worked. And them losing this Champions League final only makes it even worse. We'll see if he sticks around for the entirety of next season. There's a rumor that he's ready to go to MLS after the World Cup. Um, but I, I, I really believe that Messi should be kind of criticized heavily for being, una being unable to influence Paris Saint-Germain's greatest hurdle as a club, and that's being able to take the next step in the Champions League. I do wonder if PSG going out this early early because it's still early in the grand scheme of things in the champions league does have an impact on messi coming to mls potentially sooner rather than later and it this has been a failure at psg and it's crazy the way the standards are but that's what the standards are he knew that when he came but it's it's a little depressing I, i'm a big messy guy i always have been i think he's a genius and and yet this season, I was just in Barcelona last week, so it was, I was talking to people there at the club and, and it was just like, it's so strange not having Messi at Barcelona and in this sort of weird state of things at PSG. And it's going to be even more weird, I think, now moving forward because they're kind of, their season's kind of a lame duck season now. They're way ahead in the, in the French League. Nobody really cares that much about the French League. And I think there's going to be a lot of talk about what comes next for him. That said, if Argentina has a good World Cup and and they can somehow 
go on a deep run in that tournament with Messi and likely his last World Cup, that's a possibility and that could change the discussion around Messi. But honestly, after winning the Ballon d'Or last year, I think he could make a huge drop for what that's worth. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, in, 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 that, in that voting, yeah. I mean, and if you look at his output from this season, he's got seven goals in all competitions, and four of them were in the Champions League against the two sides that were eliminated in the group stage in their group, Club Brugge and RB Leipzig. Like, that's that's not making the impact that he was meant to make. And if you look at, like, just year over year, I, you don't even have to look at season on season. At Barcelona, he scored 672 goals in 778 games. Like, this is basically a guy who's been good for a goal every game in his career. And the fact that he's on 7 from 25 in Paris, it shows that the structure doesn't work for him and that maybe he was just so incredibly comfortable in how to play in the Barcelona side that now you throw something that is completely different at him, a different league, a different setup, a different group of teammates, a different coach, and it just hasn't adjusted. Yeah, and it's crazy to me, too, how much better Mbappe is than any other player on that PSG team. And, and so to think about what his future might be now that this is over and the whole game, you know, games against Real Madrid or, or in the past tense, I do wonder he's going to be a free agent at the end of the season. He could just come out publicly next week and say, I'm going to Real Madrid. I've signed <laughs> a pre-contract. Yeah. Um, I'll be curious to see if any of that happens. I'm sure El Chiringuito will keep us updated on all of that. But uh, yeah, exactly. TikTok season has begun, or <laughs> is continuing. Um, TikTok season never ends. Is there anything else you is, is, is there anything else you want to say about Champions League? Yeah, I mean, we can just kind of uh, run through the other games. So um, Bayern, incredibly impressive against Inter uh, against RB Salzburg, absolutely wiped the floor with them. That was incredibly impressive, even though at times in the beginning of the game Salzburg were in it. But I think Bayern kind of reestablished. Hey. We, if at worst, you know, we're second favorites, third favorites, but they're right in that conversation uh, with the English clubs. Other than Manchester United, they remain in the competition. Speaking of uh, Inter, I thought we're incredibly unlucky uh, to not have a real go at it just because Lautaro Martinez scores an incredible goal to make it 2 1 in the tie. And then immediately Alexis Sanchez gets sent off. That was a real bummer. And I, I was surprised that there were arguments that that wasn't a yellow. I thought that was. You know, I, I I didn't think that was straight red. I thought that was yellow, and then I realized that was yeah. second yellow. So it's it's so it's not really an argument. But you go over the ball, even if you get some of it, you're that high stud showing. You're gonna get a yellow card for that. And uh, yeah, so it was a bummer that you didn't have that finale. And then I think really the most entertaining and engaging tie of the round: Manchester City nil, Sporting nil, <laughs> uh, rounding out a five nil aggregate win. It really did anyone watch that? Did anyone care? The the funny thing for me was CBS advertising their split screen you can watch both the psg real madrid game and this other game that has you on the edge of your seat between man city and sporting <laughs> pep and the funny thing is where i was watching there were two screens so i was able to see occasionally like pep cordial is such a weirdo he does weirdo things at least once a week he was like all intense during this game on the <laughs> sidelines. <laughs> like, I'm like looking around like, Pep, you don't need to be this way. You're up five right. goals, dude. Right. If there is a game to stick on Scott Carson, your third choice goalkeeper, <laughs> and sit on the bench and smoke a cigarette for 90 minutes, it would be this one. Calm down. Oh, oh my God. It also reminded me, by the way, Zach Steffen's still hurt. Yeah. And... Uh, Matt Turner also hurt, <laughs> so Sean Johnson time. Oh, for <laughs> oh man, I was going Slonina, 17-year-old debut in the Azteca. I love it. I mean, think about that. We haven't really talked about that much, but I guess no, we, we have not. some time over the next next couple of weeks. But uh, we got a couple of great interviews uh, coming up here in this episode, so I think we'll just cut it off here for right now interesting champions league week obviously a lot of them are once the knockout rounds hit thanks as always chris no problem it's too bad uh, we're recording this before the real greatest club continental competition in the world continues the Concacaf champions league come on seattle come on seattle <laughs> we'll get to ccl at some point down the road and i will jinx mls by saying i think they're going to win this year at least an mls team will finally do it but now is my interview with Kellen Acosta. Our guest now is a rock-solid midfielder for LAFC and the U.S. men's national team, 
Kellen Acosta just started his 10th MLS season. He made 21 appearances for the national team in 2021, becoming the first U.S. men's national team player to earn that many caps in a calendar year since 1994. Kellen, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I know you just got out of the training room out in Los Angeles. How are you? I know you looked a little uncomfortable at the end of the last game. Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, back in uh, first training of the week. I'm feeling good and uh, ready for this weekend. Nice. Good to hear. There's plenty to talk about, obviously, with LAFC, which we'll get to very soon here. But let's start with the national team. Huge World Cup qualifiers coming up. Mexico, Panama, Costa Rica. What stands out to you as the most important things for you to be thinking about as a player heading into these games? Yeah, it's the first game. Um, you can't really worry about the, the, the second and third. You can't get the first game um, out the way. So, yeah, I mean, we, we turn our focus on, on Thursday versus Mexico. Um, it's going to a tough opponent, a team that we're familiar with the team, you know, needs points just as, as we do. Um, it's going to be a battle. Um, but, um, it's something that we're, we're definitely up for. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's going to be a big task ahead, but I think with the quality of players that we have and the talent that we have, we're going to go out there and get the result that, that we need. Weston McKenney is out of these games with a broken metatarsal situation that means a lot of people think you might play a big role filling in. You came in for Tyler Adams in the last game, had a really good game. How different would it be if you filled in for McKenney's role, which isn't the same exactly as Tyler Adams' role? Yeah, I mean, it's a, definitely a position that I'm familiar with. I play as an eight here at LAFC and, you know, getting the repetitions here um, definitely will help me transition um, if I were to play there with the national team. Um, you know, I I've also played there under Greg as well, so I know what he asked of his eights. I mean, obviously, Weston is a, a great player and an important piece for our team, so missing him um, is obviously going to be a challenge. But for us, it's next guy up. Um, and for me, you know, if you know if I'm going to be playing there, I mean, we give him my best foot forward and, you know, bring my attributes and help the team in any which way possible. You saw Weston McKenney in person at the game in L.A. the other night. What did you two talk about? Yeah, no, I was just asking how he's doing, you know, just mentally and um, I think this is his first, you know, major injury for him. Um, and obviously at a point of his career where he's playing really, really well. So I know it was kind of disappointing for him, um, especially, you know, this big stretch of games where he's going to have to be sidelined for it. So I'll just kind of just ask him how he's doing, um, you know, how he's holding up, you know, um, you know, enjoying his time in LA, <laughs> seeing him out there. So I'm glad he, you know, got some time away, just kind of just reset for himself. Uh, but it was obviously it's great to see him. He's a big personality, a great dude. But um, yeah, um, you know, wish him well in his recovery and um, hope he recovers quickly. So we're going to need him. As I mentioned earlier, you made a huge difference in the last U.S. game, especially with your set piece delivery, among other things. Three set piece goals, the first ones for the U.S. in the 11 games of the tournament so far. When you take a set piece delivery, what exactly are you looking to do with it? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just put it in a spot where the big boys are able to challenge for it and let them do the rest. And we have guys that are strong in the air, like Weston's, the Walkers, um, Miles, you name it. I mean, there's, there's several guys that, you know, they've scored a lot of goals with their head. So if you put them in, in dangerous positions and and guys with, with with that quality are able to to make a play on it and and you saw in the past game we were able to to capitalize and you know score score some goals was there a sense at all of finally because set pieces have always been a, a huge us advantage you won the gold cup final uh, against Mexico on a late set piece goal and then you went 10 games in qualifying without getting a set piece goal like was there in any sense the team wondering, like, why haven't we scored on a set piece? Yeah, in a way, I think it's definitely a factor in the game that you got to be mindful and pay attention to. I think set pieces are definitely crucial, especially these high stakes games. I mean, these games are a moment of details. And, and you know, if you execute it right, you're uh, able to, to make a difference in the game. And for us, you know, I think uh, what we struggle most with is obviously the, the lack of service in terms of the quality of it. Um, and wasn't great for, for guys to make plays on it. So when we can put guys in 
in good spots and the ball in good spots, you you can see what can happen. And that's what we've shown, um, you know, previously, you know, in the finals that we played in, put the ball in a dangerous area, guys will make plays. And so we were definitely rewarded in the past game. And, you know, um, you know, we're able to have some some set pieces in these upcoming games and hopefully we can make the most of it and, and execute uh, um, positively and, you know, score some more goals. I thought it was interesting that you mentioned everything in your mind right now is about this first game in the qualifying window against Mexico, which leads to my next question. Everyone is putting a lot of importance, it seems like, on the second game in this window, the home game against Panama. If you win that game, Panama cannot catch the U.S. But that also has some folks asking the question, well, there's a short turnaround after the Mexico game, should the U.S. perhaps not put its very best lineup on the field in Mexico for game one and save it for Panama? What do you think? Are we overthinking all of this? I think for us, each game is a final and treat it accordingly. Let the chips fall where they may. I think with with our roster and our group of guys, anyone can play in any which game and we'll have a team out there ready to perform and execute. Um, like I mentioned, I mean, the first game is always the most important. Everyone's always thinking about the second game. But, um, you know, first game is the very first game is the game that you got to come prepared and come um, ready for battle because um, Mexico is not going to just fall down and tremble easily. And, uh, you know, the first game is obviously very crucial, very important. And then after the first game, then we turn our sights on to the second game. And then from the second game, that you turn on your sights to the third game. I mean, each game plays a pivotal role into where we want to go. And so we got to, you know, plan accordingly and um look uh, and treat each game like a final. Obviously, you played a ton of games for the national team last year. You've become a really important part of the team again, it seems like. But there was a, a, a time frame for a, a while where some of us were wondering if, you know, how much you were going to be used by the national team. I think it's accurate to say that you revived your national team career. How did you go about doing that? Yeah, just kind of just buckling down and just changing my focus. I think it was, it was kind of a a pivotal moment for me because it was kind of just like a reset. Um, you know, you, sometimes you ride the highs for so long, you kind of forget the little details that go along with it. So when I wasn't getting called in, um, you know, for, I don't know, a couple of years, it was just one of those things where I'm like, okay, obviously I'm not there for a reason. What can I do to change my game? Help put myself in the best form to, to give me a chance to have another opportunity in front of Greg and the coaching staff to, to be out there. And for me, I mean, um, you know, those dark times actually helps me tremendously as a person, as a player. And I learned a lot by myself and I was able to, you know, kind of change every aspect, whether it was my diet, getting more sleep, um, watching more video, watching, um, you know, more football around. And I kind of had that necessary reset that kind of put me in the position where I am today. And it's definitely been truly helpful as as weird as as it as it is you know um but sometimes obstacles help you grow and you know that growth was definitely needed for me and um you know it's it's weird to say like a, it was almost like a big thank you to the staff for doing that for me because it kind of put me in the position that i am today that's really cool thanks for sharing um in terms of lafc it wasn't that long ago that you got traded to lafc from colorado you're two games into the new season lafc has four points what have been the biggest adjustments for you coming into a new team? Just getting just acclimated to the players around me and people's tendencies. I think you, it, it, I mean, it's, it's, always, it's always difficult because you're like, okay, you know, you're playing with, with good players. You should automatically be able to, to play well. But sometimes just forming relationships on the field um, and off the field is, is two different things, obviously. I mean, the guys are a great group of guys, but just knowing, you know, what players like what, where do they want the ball, when they want it, time to, to come to, time to go away, you know, kind of all those little details and aspects. I mean, and you start to grow as you play more and train more. Um, as you can see, I think as a team, we're getting better and better um, as the days go on. Um, you know, we're definitely not at where we want to be, but I feel like we're, we're in a step in the right direction. Four points um, so far. Another big game on the weekend. So it's just an opportunity for us to just keep growing as a team. And, um, you know, every training session is an opportunity for us to get better. And I think we're, we're utilizing that time to do so. 
Um, you know, the guys have been brilliant. The coaching staff have been great. So just adjusting to the different tactics and different system and different players, I mean, it's the hardest part, but uh, I feel like I'm adapting and adjusting uh, um, um, pretty quickly. Um, obviously, I want to, you know, adapt overnight, but sometimes that's not the case. But um, for me, um, just, you know, trying to, you know, better myself and, you know, better the team in any which way possible. What have you learned so far about Steve Cherendolo as a coach and what he's looking for? Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that, you know, kind of just lets me play, play freely. And he he gives me little pointers here about adjusting my position, adjusting my height, um, shows me a lot of videos. So he's, you know, trying to get me comfortable and bring the best out of me. And I think he's done a great job. Um, you know, I had the pleasure of working with him. Um with the national team, he he was like an assistant um, when we went to England and Italy. So guy that I was somewhat familiar with before, and um, you know, just kind of just hearing about him and um, before I came in, I mean, it was just awesome, kind of just be being with a guy that's played at the highest level that knows what it takes to, you know, play at the highest level and be and be a great player. So just learning under him um, has been tremendous. I mean, obviously, he's he's a great dude, but. The coaching has been, it's been great, it's been tremendous. And um, uh, it's one of those guys where you don't get fooled with this because he, he can, he can uh, bring some, some toughness out of him as well. And mm -hmm. I think that's definitely needed as a coach, but uh, he's definitely a player's coach. Um, and um, yeah, it's been so good so far. Um, I'm hoping that things can continue staying positive. Hopefully he doesn't yell at us too much down the road, but uh, but sometimes it's needed. I really enjoyed the recent podcast you did with former U.S. player Eddie Johnson. And on that podcast, you thanked him for his, his influence on you and your playing career. How would you describe that influence that he had on you? Yeah, I mean, it was, I think it was surprising for him because he had no idea. I mean, I was just a young kid going to Dallas Burn games. Um, my dad used to take me and, you know, it, it was different because he he was 17 years old, 18 years old, I forget how old he was at the time. And he was a guy that kind of looked at me, looked like me playing, you know, at a high level, being, being in a position where I only dreamt of. And so just kind of watching him and, you know, seeing his mannerism, seeing how he was, he was confident, seeing how, you know, despite his age, he was going out there and giving his all scoring goals, being a force. I mean, he was definitely inspiring to me. And I kind of just want to utilize kind of that aspect and that manner for, for myself, because I feel like there's, there's players that are probably looking up at me, like, Oh, they want to be Kana Costa. So, you know, keeping that in mind and, and, you know, Eddie, especially what he does with the youth is, is tremendous. And so I kind of try to implement that in, into to my everyday life, which is, you know, help inspire the youth and, and you know, help grow the sport um, because I'm, I'm hoping that there can be future counter costs out there or, or players that are definitely going to even, even be better than me. So just help grow the sport, help grow the national team, help grow the league, um, you know, and, you know, help, uh, form a better future for for the whole community around us. I remember covering Eddie Johnson in 2005 when he was with Dallas and he really was, you're right, he was sort of an anomaly or something fairly new. Uh, and there weren't that many black players in the league um, at that right. point. And I'm wondering what you think about today with the national team, there's, a lot more black players on the national team than there used <laughs> yeah. to be. Is that something that you notice that you uh, that you talk about with other players? No, we 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 kind of just joke around about it, but I mean, it's not really a, a main focus for all of us. Obviously, it's kind of inspiring to see, but it just just shows the quality of and how diverse our team is. I mean, not just, you know, African-Americans, but, you know, Mexican-Americans, um, German-Americans. I mean, you name it, we got it. Um, I mean, it, it's a diverse team. I mean, that's kind of just, you know, symbolizes like our anchors, BDR, which is diverse is one of them, how we come together culturally of all different, you know, communities and we come together and we're able to, to form our team and build this relationship and, and um, you know, bring our different qualities into the team. So, I mean, it's, it, it's, not a surprise there, but it just it's just great to see, you know, how diverse our team as, is as a whole and how we can come together and, you know, play the beautiful game and get the results. And I think that's the, the most important thing. I was telling you before we started recording that you and I have done 
interviews and after games before, but never a one-on-one -on -one interview until but, now. And I'm glad we're getting the chance to rectify that. <laughs> yeah, um, and, uh, better late than never. <laughs> exactly. Um, I was reading a little bit about your background and had read that you have some Japanese heritage as well. Is, is that accurate? Yes, that's accurate. Is that um, from parents, grandparents? Yeah, my my dad. My dad is, he was born in Japan and lived in Japan until he was, I don't know, 10 or 12. Japanese was his first language. And so, yeah, so when he was 12, he moved to the U.S. He actually doesn't speak any Japanese anymore. So he's, <laughs> you know, full on American. So I'm fortunate uh, for me where I didn't really learn too much Japanese. But uh, yeah, my grandma is 100% uh, Japanese. Um, I actually haven't met my dad's real dad. But my dad's stepdad, his adopted dad, is actually Mexican. And so that's where you get the name Acosta from, which is <laughs> a Mexican last name. So people, um, you know, I come from a very diverse background in a sense. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's 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 what I'm made up of. And uh, I've been embracing it and it's been, it's been great. That's really cool. Um I actually was just over in Venice and did an interview with Gianluca Buzio there, and, and his dad is Italian, and yet right. he, he was saying what he's learned is he didn't learn much Italian uh, in his family growing up because uh, his dad spoke all English growing up. He's wishing he'd actually learned some Italian yeah. now that he's over there. Did, <laughs> um, do you do you have much connection to to the Japanese side of like culturally over the years? No, I mean in terms just just of the food, that's about it. I mean, I, other than that, I mean, not too much. I mean, I'm full blown American. I grew up in Dallas area. I mean, as close as Japan I get is going to like my grandma's house and eating the food and um, you know watching Japanese news. But I mean, I'm hoping you know in the coming years there's a big. Um, Japanese population here in LA. I'm hoping that I could um, meet some more people out here and kind of tap in more so into my Japanese heritage inside. So um, maybe in the near future. Kellen Acosta is a midfielder for the uh, U.S. men's national team and LAFC. Kellen, good luck in all of the games coming up. Thanks for coming on the show. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Big thanks to Kellen Acosta. Now, here's my interview with Jillian Sakovitz and Susanna Collins. Our guests now are two of my favorite people in soccer media. Jillian Sakovitz and Susanna Collins are the co-hosts of The Call Up, their terrific MLS podcast that comes out every Tuesday. They're also plenty busy with other things. Jill is a fixture of Atlanta United's local TV coverage, recently made her ESPN debut, and has done some amazing international video stories on soccer. Susanna has been doing hosting work for Paramount Plus's Syria Ah studio, and just had a really good 15-minute video on the soccer culture of Charlotte that you should check out. It's great to see you both. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us, Grant. It's an honor. It's great to see you again. This is the best call up outside of the call up. <laughs> That's high For praise. Sure. Thank you so much. And congrats <laughs> on your podcast. I love your podcast and the way you do it together. You have great chemistry. You've got a real knack for drawing out the personalities of your guests on the show. In my experience, doing two-person interviews of other people is not always the easiest thing to do. And I'm wondering, how do you pull it off? I how think, do we do it, Jill? <laughs> well, we both, the first thing we did was we both paused because we tried not to step over each other and we let the other one talk. But I think the bet, I think the way we can dive into the story more, but I think I'd summarize it as the friendship was there first and the rest comes. So us having a conversation comes naturally to us and we try to bring that to our guest. Yeah. I think we, um, we, we have so much mutual respect for each other. So when we plan these episodes, when we, uh, put together the interviews and, and the questions, there is so much collaboration and, um, you know, when you work with somebody, um, so closely and you have that friendship, like Jill said, there's just sort of a, a, an easy natural cadence that comes with that. So like, we kind of know each other's cues. I sort of know if Jill wants to follow up, she knows if I wants to follow up. So, um, I think that comes with just like lots of reps together and spending a lot of time together which helps. <laughs> How did you first meet each other? How did your podcast come about? Was that connected when you first met each other or did you know each other? I have the that? 
funniest story about when we first met. So it, I had just started at MLS and Jill had been doing some freelance work for, for MLS. Um, I started in 2016 and I went into the MLS offices and Jill was there and we had on the exact same outfit, <laughs> literally the exact same outfit we had. I'll never forget it. We had a, a black leather jacket on a little like band t-shirt, skinny jeans, sneakers. And I was just like, oh, this is my people. Like, was we, like it? It, it was like immediate. I was like, okay, like we're going to get along. And that was my, that was the first time I met Jill. And, and literally in that moment, I knew um, that, that we were going to, to get along just beautifully. Your memory is amazing. It really is. <laughs> and plus, I think it's obvious on our podcast that Susanna often steerheads much of the in-depth research when it comes to our now, you know, fashion police small segment that has come up. That's not just what we are. Um, but Susan has an, an eye for that, that stuff. But to answer your question, Grant, yeah, that was 2015, 2016. The podcast didn't start until three and a half seasons ago. And the friendship came first. It, and it was just so natural that we couldn't stop talking, whether it was after work, hotel lobby, on the phone, FaceTime, it just a friendship of years really developed that she's my biggest confidant. I know I can run anything by her. And I know she's also my biggest cheerleader while we both love and want to, you know, grow in the space. Um, and we would sit around like hotel lobby bars and chit chat and chit chat. And we would just be like, can you imagine we could share some of this with people? <laughs> and similar to if we ran into a player or coach or front office staff in that hotel lobby, like the conversations. And, and that's, that's what we try to bring is just exactly that without getting into the weeds without overdoing it. Um, just bringing that conversation that we'd naturally be having about like, I ran into the back of Brad Gazan or like, I almost tripped Joseph coming out of the tunnel, like whatever it is. We just like to share that every week now with people beyond each other. I would like to see a picture of you two in the Spider-Man meme of pointing at each other based on wearing the same clothes <laughs> the first time you met. So it happens all the time. <laughs> Yeah, we'll come down to the pod and we'll both have on yellow t-shirts. And we'll be like, okay, this like, is bad. What? That's Great why nice. I just do an audio podcast here. I don't have to worry about the video stuff. <laughs> it's interesting because like when I was growing up and, and even when I started to get into professional media, I never thought I would become a full-time soccer journalist for a long time. And that's not the way U.S. sports media is set up. And I'm wondering from your perspective, you both worked in sports other than soccer. Did you ever imagine you would someday be doing mostly soccer in your careers? I'd hoped. And yeah, I mean, I've been I've been in this industry for over 10 years and I've covered NFL, MLB, hockey, NASCAR, MMA. I mean, literally every sport under the sun. Um, but I was a I was a huge Liverpool fan. And I would tweet about Liverpool and I would always think like, man, it would be really cool to, to get into the soccer space. And then I have to give credit to Mike Milberger, who was working at MLS digital at the time. And he followed me. I was working at SB nation at the time on their video team. And he said, I see you tweet about Liverpool. Um, I love your, your work. Would you ever consider covering major league soccer? And I was like this, yes. Uh -huh. Like I've been looking for an avenue to, to get into this sport. And that's kind of how it happened. Mike Milberger slid into my DMs and uh, I've been at MLS. I've never looked back. And what was your Liverpool fandom? Where did that come from? I, so I studied abroad in London um, in college and I've been a huge sports fan my entire life. My whole family is very, very sporty. I was an athlete and I missed, I just, I, I missed like that sporting culture when I was abroad and I was like, I need to adopt a team here so I can sort of just uh, ingratiate myself with the, with the locals. And so everyone I knew was either an Arsenal fan or a Manchester United fan. And I decided I needed to buck that trend. And I was a huge fan of Steven Gerrard. I, he just became my guy. So Liverpool it was, and, and that's, that's how it started. And I just, I would go to bars and watch in pubs in London. And I just completely, completely fell in love with the culture, um, with the league, with everything. So that's how it started for me. So I never thought I would work in soccer. I thought it, for me, it was like the opposite. I, I was a soccer player growing up, played my whole life since I was five. And then when it kind of came time for college, it was the discussion of, is this something I'm going to dive into more? And the hard part for me was that I knew at that point I'd be 
once I said goodbye, I thought I'd be saying goodbye forever. Like, well, soccer's out. I knew I wanted to be a journalist of some kind, but saying you want to be a soccer or even at on top of that, a sports journalist to me was like saying, I want to be like a movie star. So, all right, time to get a job, time to move on with your life. And I was super upset about it and depressed and I didn't touch soccer. I played club in college. That was it. I, I kind of like turned that page. Um, I did a bunch of sports internships and took a job at News 12, which is a local station in New York. Um, as an intern, then a production assistant producer, I worked my way up. I did a ton of editing and overnight editing at MLB.com, News 12. I mean, I did everything except on air for a very, very long time. And then I worked my way into being on air at News 12. And outside of high school, soccer never, ever came up. Tommy McNamara was the only connection I had ever because he's from Rockland County <laughs> and New York City FC was launching. And that was it. So then similar to Susanna, um, I was hosting for a year for NHL.com, which if anyone's listening and wants to learn how you get into the business, I got that job because I was an editor alongside 200 guys at MLB.com and NHL was poaching editors. And they said, do you guys by chance know a host? And I covered the Rangers, Islanders and Devils uh, for News 12. And I got that hosting job out of being an an overnight editor at MLB.com. So NHL hosting this and that doing news 12 and then MLS to Susanna's point we heard was kind of looking around and uh, that was it. I jumped at it. It was like anybody else. I talked to Mike Milberger shout out um, through email for months and months, nothing of it. Then all of a sudden, Hey, there's this coach in Portland. Uh, He was a phenom in college uh, coaching circuit, Caleb Porter, but it's 2015. He may miss the playoffs for the second straight year. And he could get fired. Like we need someone who has live TV experience to just go out there and see what happens. Well, they don't miss the playoffs. They uh, go on a crazy run. They win MLS cup. So like any job grant, you know, like I went out there for decision day and then it's like, Oh, you know what, Jill, you did well. Players seem to do well with you. Like, can you go back out for this? Can you go back out for that? And I think it had the Timbers not won MLS cup that year. I may, may not have been able to attach myself to something. So it just, it comes in the craziest ways. That's how MLS came about for me. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. I'm wondering, because you both have covered other sports besides soccer, you know, what is it about the sport of soccer on the field, off the field that most appeals to you? I love how it's part of people's life all year long and all week long. And I going back to Portland, you know, I, I come from an immigrant family, so I knew that on a national team level, but I didn't realize it in the U.S. on a club level. And I'll be the first to admit that. And I, I had seen, I think it was a sports illustrated article about, about the Timbers army. And I had remember reading that, but I hadn't, I hadn't been to an MLS match out in the Pacific Northwest. And I went out there and I saw this is part of their life all week. They are doing soup kitchens together on a Tuesday. They're in a bowling league together on a Thursday. It's so much beyond hanging out at a tailgate for a New York giants game where you see the same faces for two or three hours a week. And it was soccer. So for me, that was, that was it. I think for me, it was, it was such an untapped resource at the time. Like there were so many stories to be told. Soccer was still on this upwards trajectory, but you know, there weren't, weren't a ton of people following the sport. And so when you, when you looked at the sports media landscape, there was such a saturation of NFL coverage and MLB coverage and NBA coverage. And there are just so many incredible stories about players, about coaches uh, coming from the soccer world. And so for me, it was exciting to be like, hey, like we can tell these stories. We can we can start to build excitement and and build fan bases uh, based on these incredible stories that are that are yet to be told. So it was just sort of like, I don't know, just this like completely like this untapped, like very rich resource of 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 really like incredible human interest stories. Um, about the the people that play it and the people that support it and watch it. Uh, and that was super appealing because there just wasn't, there was room for it. There was so much space for it at the time. Still add, go ahead, Sus. Oh no, go ahead. And to add what to Suzanne is saying, which is such a good point. It blew my mind how, you know, if you're driving up to the MSG training facility for Rangers or Knicks, you type in Knicks and there's 30 previews about the Knicks who haven't won in 10 games, but there's 20 previews from every paper, every blogger, and I liked the challenge to what Suzanne is talking about of like, you could be going out to a Portland, Kansas City game and there might be one preview out there and there might be 
profiles done on one or two players. It just, yeah, there were things to be talked about. It's incredible. It's such a good point. I mean, as a former basketball writer, which is what I did at the start with soccer on the side before I went full-time soccer, I love the variety in soccer. And it's not that I didn't like basketball anymore. I just thought there was more variety in the soccer space, like you're talking about, even inside the U.S. with MLS, just because the stories are from everywhere, from around the world. Um, what are some of the favorite moments for you guys in the history of your podcast? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, there's so many to choose from. There's so many. To I mean, I, I'm going back recently to MLS Cup this past year. I mean, mm. being there watching Ronnie Dyla strip down to his skivvies <laughs> and then talking to him immediately after that moment <laughs> was pretty um it was just so unique and it was so fun and he was so he was just so unfiltered and and joyful in that moment um and and that's really cool when you can when you can be a part of of those moments where it's just so authentic and um just raw those are the moments that like just sort of i don't know i'm like oh this is this is why this is why we do what we do um so that's one that like immediately sticks out in my mind ronnie d god ronnie he's d. Ne he's never yeah he instantly became ronnie d in that in that moment i think too to add to that i would go back to one of our first ever shows you know i think having you know we had dax mccarty on in episode one peter <laughs> vermees in, in episode two and i think there was a little bit of a fear of how far do we push it to want to have these casual conversations and really and really not be afraid of the quote soccer snobs of like, how could you ask Dax about what he did when he was in ninth grade? Everybody knows that. And like, that is kind of the barrier that we all, I think, try to chip away at is like, no, they don't. Not everyone knows everything yeah. about Dax McCarty. <laughs> and it's, it's so easy to get wrapped up in our bubble. And I think that I, I'd be interested to know if Susanna feels the same way, but I know when I came into it, I was a soccer person. I was a highly educated um, covering sports person. I knew how to cover every sport on this planet. And I still felt incredibly alienated by the MLS coverage. And not that it wasn't incredible. It was incredible, but it was so hard to kind of peel back the first layer that like, I don't know who these Red Bull 2 players are. And you're talking to me like I do. So how do I get into that? And if I felt that way as a professional in the sports space, how did fans feel? So I think it was those first few interviews of Dax, Peter Vermees being like, are they going to look at us like we're dumb because we're asking them casual questions? And the amount of times, Grant, we get like a thank you for asking me yeah. that feels good. Yeah, I think we've always been interested in the the human side of of athletes and, and coaches, you know, this whole concept of like athletes are humans too. And there's been some really, really cool moments of where you feel like, you know, you're able to kind of strip down that, that layer, that facade that oftentimes coaches and players will, will put out, um, forward facing and you just get to, you get to know them and you have these, like these little moments of levity, like, you know, Peter Vermees talking to us about, his Thanksgiving plans and just like, you know, like, it's like, Oh, like those are moments that are just really, really special. And I do think that people have an appetite for that. You know, like there's, it's um, as to Jill's point, soccer, soccer coverage can, can get in the weeds a lot, which is great. And I, I, I love those conversations as well. And we can talk X's and O's all you want, but there's also an appetite for, for just the human side of things. And I think that, you know, anytime that we can have those moments um, is, is, basically validation for us. Like, yeah, this is, this is why we do this. And to, I did answer a question about our favorite ones, but it would be probably the, just the realm of it. Like whether it's Jonathan Mensa of the Columbus crew and his wife who had to wait two years to come from Ghana. And we play the shoe game, the wedding game where it's like, you know, who's the worst driver. And we do that. Or it's talking to Ja'Cory Hayes and Mason toy a week after, you know, the murder of George Floyd, who were both at the time playing for Minnesota United. Like it's, it's just, it's the whole mix. I want to thank you for that approach because we don't see it all the time uh, in sports media, in U.S. soccer media, and it does humanize the players. And it is good that you're not just doing the same thing that everyone else is doing. And I wish actually there was more of it. Um, 
you guys travel a lot uh, for your work, and I'm wondering, there are now 28 MLS stadiums. How many have you been to? Who's been to more? I, until this year, it was all of them. Until last year, when we added three, it was all of them. Yeah. And now I haven't been to any of those. I have not been to uh, the new Austin Stadium. I have not been to Same. the new Columbus Stadium or Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And the only one that I haven't been to that was there uh, previously is Vancouver, which I'm dying to get to. I'm Best dying. road city in MLS. Dying to get there. But yeah, every every other one I have been to. But I'm hoping I well, this weekend I'll be in Austin. So I'll get to I'll get to see that. Oh, one. yeah. I can check it off the list. Same. Nice. Same. Nice. Uh, we're in the exact same boat. So the the three that were rolled out um in 2021, uh, we haven't been to due to COVID, but hopefully that changes by I know. by October. And Jill, you already anticipated my next question, which is what are your top three MLS road cities? Vancouver's num- number one in terms of oh, this is Vancouver's number one in terms of like what you can do, not just at the game. Like mm-hmm. the topography of Vancouver is just wild. Mm, and then away cities, it's without a doubt um, Providence Park in Portland and Mercedes Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Like if I was to tell anyone coming to the U.S., that would be the two stadia to go to and uh, away city Vancouver. Yeah, I would put I put Montreal in there. Yeah. I love Montreal, and yeah. I think that is uh, very underrated. And it's Sue funny, speaks a- French, some French. That's why she likes Montreal. <laughs> well, and a lot of the it's funny. A lot of the players um, we've asked that question well, before, and a lot of them say Montreal is on the top of their list. So that's a it's just a beautiful city, um, and that stadium's really cool. Portland is there, and I would put Kansas City. I love Kansas mm. City. Kansas love City Kansas native city. here. Thank you. Children's Mercy Park is fantastic, and Kansas City is such a cool a cool town. I love my trips there. Underrated, I would say, Kansas. Totally City. underrated. You know, and I'm totally and one of the better stadia there. too in in the league. I like. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, but if we were going soccer nerd, then Grant, then I'll go like Red Bull Arena, Kansas City. <laughs> but we're going like flavor fan fairway city. <laughs> So, Jill, I, I mentioned earlier in the introduction, you've done some terrific foreign reporting over the years for videos for MLS from Ghana, from Jordan, from Honduras. Could you explain to our listeners a little bit what those stories were about? Sure. So, like I mentioned, I never thought in a million years I'd be able to do be doing sideline or hosting, anything like that. And um, I loved watching shows as a kid, like 60 Minutes, and just sitting there and learning something totally new that I never, never knew about and learning about other parts of the world. Um, like I mentioned, I have family that has struggled and fought the good fight to, to create better lives in the United States. And I always kind of wanted to learn a little bit more about like wh- wh- how, because I have no sense of that. I grew up so privileged. So then when I was working at MLS and I mentioned, you know, going out meeting the Timbers Army, for example, I was like, what people are doing outside of the game is incredible. So the series was called Beyond the Stands, and it lasted three seasons and like many things died with coronavirus. But it was at first focused on the supporter groups and just what they do. So it would be Minnesota United doing drives for um, Haitian youth teams, uh, Timbers Army and, and all that they do. Jordan Morris and the uh, fans, you know, doing things for diabetes. And, and it became that. And then in year three, we got the budget and the ability to push it internationally. And that for me was just a culmination of all things that I am passionate about telling stories about. It was Jonathan Mensa take, I went, I ruined Jonathan Mensa's honeymoon. He was married days <laughs> before we arrived in Ghana and he didn't go on a honeymoon to take us around to the orphanages And to the homes for um, kids with developmental disabilities around and took us around all week. Um, I went to a refugee camp in Jordan for Syrian refugees with Mehdi Bellucci, now an assistant at New York City FC, Honduras with a gang ravaged uh, neighborhood that Albert Elise is from. And it was just we're so lucky to do what we do. We're so lucky to live where we live that people are living like that. They're living like that. So to be able to just go for a week and, and experience it. It's incredible. And it's it's unreal what people like a Jonathan Mensa have gone through to get to this point. Whereas I live an hour and a half from where I grew up and, and that's as far as I've had to struggle. These videos are totally worth seeing, very easy to track down on the internet, uh, which you should do. Um, in terms of Susanna, some of the video stuff you do, you just did this very cool, ambitious 15 minute video with Kaylin Carr about Charlotte. 
uh, which is sort of the big story uh, early in the MLS season, set a new attendance record for a single game last weekend. How did you go about that process? Like how many days of shooting goes into something like that? Great question, Grant, because it had it had been a minute since we have been able to do um, a video like that, where we are able to spend some time, some actual, like multiple days, we were in Charlotte for about four days and it was about four, four and a half total days of, of shooting. And because of COVID, um, we have not been able to do that type of feature for a very long time. And when I first started MLS, that was kind of, uh, my bread and butter. I would do it all the time. I had a series called BTW and we would go on these really cool shoots and do cool things with players. So that part was amazing. So it was a, it was a, a four and a half day shoot with Kaylin Carr mm. and we realized, um, you know, we, <sighs> Charlotte was going to be the the brand new team in in MLS, and we saw a need on our channels uh, to to celebrate that and tell this story because we hadn't seen really enough about um, just you know how it was all coming together, not only within the club but with the the city and the supporters and all of that. And so um, Kyle Green, one of our producers, had had pitched this idea, and um, they signed off on it. And it was it was awesome. Um, it was about three weeks ago. We got to spend four days there. We got to uh, talk to players. We got to talk to Miguel Angel Ramirez. We got to spend some really quality time um, with a few of the supporters groups, which was just it was so awesome. It's really really special. Um, to see something, to see, see it in on the ground floor and these supporters groups. I mean, this team at that point, they hadn't even taken the field for one game yet. And there is so much enthusiasm and, and passion of, of surrounding the club. And I was, I was actually blown away because you just don't know when there's a new team, how it's going to be received in, in a city. Um, but we saw, you know, we we've seen what, happened in Atlanta with that club. And it had that same type of energy. There was such an awareness around Charlotte about this team coming in. And I was just so, so impressed. And it was, it was such a privilege to, uh, to talk to these people that love, that love the sport of soccer and their whole, their, all they want to do is create this, um, this community. And so it was, it, it, I love doing shoots like that when you can actually spend some concentrated time, um, and get a sense for, for what it's going to be. And now look, you know, year one product on the field is still, uh, questionable. There's definitely some work to do, but I will say that, um, everything around it, they're doing, they're doing right. And, um, it was so gratifying to watch, that broadcast with the nearly 75,000 fans um, because to know all the, the work that had led up to that point and, you know, to have that sort of payoff moment was just, it was really, really cool. And those are, those are the kind of stories that um, we love to tell. And I hope we get to do more of it this year. I do too, because I learned a lot about Charlotte and their whole operation from your video um, felt pretty good about what I was seeing there, you know, and, uh, would love to see you do that with more teams. It, it's crazy to me having covered this league for 20 some years, the Southeast used to be this sort of graveyard where no MLS teams existed. And now the Southeast is front and center with all the teams that have done well, especially expansion teams in recent years in MLS. And Jill, I associate you in many ways with Atlanta because that's a team you've worked with for a long time. And one thing, like, there's so many things I could ask you about here, but I loved the fact that you started working in Spanish a little bit with some of the interviews. And I'm wondering how did that come about and, and what are you doing with it? Poco a poco, right? <laughs> Little by little, I'm trying my best. And it's really something I had to double down on. Um, it's my fifth year as the sideline reporter for Atlanta United and the host of our pre and post game shows. And I love that city so much. I love that job so much. It's just every day that I do it, I am put, always blown away by who they're bringing in, what new ideas they're having. We had a kit launch for the forest kit in Piedmont Park. And Grant, this looked like a $500,000 wedding. It was incredible. Like, the trees in the park were uplit in green and like the screens opened to reveal the players and there's smoke. And I'm like, I can't believe that this is a secondary kit launch. Like this is incredible. And 
they've embraced me so much, whether it's the the fans, the the players, you know, and Joseph Martinez or head coach Gonzalo Pineda, that I have to do my part. I studied abroad in Valencia in Spain, and I really got my beginnings of Spanish there. And then that was 10 years ago, and that has totally dissipated. So I've really, in the last couple of years, dove back into uh, my online classes and nice. my Rosetta Stone. And Joseph puts himself out there with me, um, and he teases me a lot. So I, on live TV, put myself out there with him and he appreciated it. And, it, and you know, like Joseph Martinez is the face of that franchise. And it, it's not just for him. It's also just to be able to say gracias to Gonzalo, you know, to give someone that little connection. I, I know what it's like to hear just one word in your native language and how important that is for people to build comfort. And I, even if I don't always use it on TV, it's just so on. When I'm sitting down talking to players that, that I can show that I, I respect what they do and, and I want to I want to give that back. One thing I've learned is, and I do a little bit in Spanish sometimes myself, is you don't need to be perfect and and yet the effort is generally appreciated, um, which, and you can connect and do your job better in many ways. Yeah, likewise, Grant. Credit to you doing, um, mm-hmm. it, was it Telemundo? I did that last month after the live TV. I was I hadn't really done any live TV in Spanish for a couple of years. So I was a little freaked out, but it worked out okay. Yeah, but answering multiple questions, like that's next level. <laughs> I'm the one asking the questions, but I told Joseph, like, all right, yo hablo en español, pero tú necesitas hablas en in English. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, Susanna, you're doing stuff for Syria uh, coverage, uh, hosting some studio stuff for Paramount Plus, doing very well at it. Thank Question you. for you. How did that come about? And what is the hardest Italian word for you that you have to work <laughs> on to pronounce correctly? Oh, God. Um, there's many. Um, Salernitana and Cal- Cagliari are probably the two that I kept saying over and over in my head. Like, do not mess this up. Do not mess this up, Susanna. Um, but yeah. Oh, man. It's a, it, it's a beautiful language, but it can be, um, it can be daunting and, and a mouthful, um, especially if it's not just like, sort of like locked into your vocabulary. So that oh, was a little intimidating. so good to me, what you just said. That was beautiful. Listen, that was, that was after weeks of practicing. Um, but yeah, that, that opportunity came about, it, it's, it's actually like a very full circle moment for me because um, Pete Radovich, who is the executive producer um, of all of CBS sports and, and Paramount plus soccer coverage. He actually gave me my start in the industry as a correspondent on inside the NFL. Um, my, literally I had a, like, my path is very, uh, very different and serendipitous. Talk about being right place, right time. Um, but I was a correspondent inside the NFL and my first day of my job, I walked into, the studios at NFL films in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. And it was Chris Collinsworth and James Brown and Phil Sims and Warren Sapp. And I was like, what am I doing here? Like little Susanna, like they were like, who is this girl? And Pete basically like plucked me out of obscurity and gave me my first job. And uh, that kind of just like put me on a path. And I was so, so grateful. So then when CBS and Paramount Plus started really investing in their, in their soccer coverage, um, my agents had said, oh, you know, we're going we're gonna to reach out to, to CBS. And I said, that's so funny because like I have a relationship with, with Pete. And so it just kind of, it all kind of worked out. Um, it was so funny. Our, our first like phone call, he, I hadn't talked to him in, in years, but he was like, Susanna, this is, you know, how, how cool is this? And I was like, this is wild Pete. Um, but I'm so grateful and it has been so much fun. I will tell anyone, um, you know, they do such a, a fantastic job. They are so invested in their soccer coverage and it's, you know, anytime there's that much care and attention, uh, for this sport, it just, it warms my heart and it's, it's daunting. Um, especially like talking about a league that, um, I followed, but not to the extent that I follow MLS certainly. Um, and so it was, it's been really good to just kind of step out of the comfort zone and, you know, take, take a risk and sort of put yourself out there a bit. Um, but it, it's been, it's been an incredible experience and, um, yeah, I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. And that studio just makes you, oh my gosh, it's like, this is, this is the real deal. This is wild. It's so cool. I don't know how you both have 
all the hours in the week to do all the various things you do, <laughs> but it, it's very impressive. We're winding down with Jillian Sakovitz and Susanna Collins. Really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, we happen to be recording this on International Women's Day. You are two of the highest profile women working in U.S. soccer media. Uh, do you wish there were more women in American soccer media? Because I do. Yes. The answer is a resounding yes. And there is so much room. There's so much room for diverse voices um, in any sport, um, but certainly, certainly soccer. And the more, the more female voices, the more um, black voices, the more, I mean, it just trans voices, any type of voice it is, it's, it's welcome and it's needed. And it gives such a, a more a rounded out coverage. And, it, and, you know, it, it, we talk about, you know, soccer being inclusive and like it, it, we need to, we need to like walk that walk all the time. And I, I, I'm telling you, I love people are always like, they try to, a lot of times they try to pit women against each other in the sports media industry. And I will never, ever buy into that because there is room for everybody and there's room for everybody's voice. And the more, the merrier, it makes the sport better. It makes the media landscape better. Um, yeah, more, please. I'll say I would like to see more people with soccer knowledge and soccer experience um, given a chance and respected in this space. I think that, Grant, looking at Men, if you know your stuff and you've put in your time and you have relationships with players, coaches, front office staff, refs, you skyrocket because there's not a lot of people that have that level of inside knowledge of American soccer and North American soccer as it pertains to MLS. And I'd like to see more people, particularly women. Um, I'd like to see that that same level of accolades respected and given opportunities based on those things. Um, but I will say I respect the places that do. And we've been lucky to be part of some incredible places and spaces that are encouraging us. Um, and, you know, you can't you can't go without saying that. And, you know, people like to hashtag girl dad and hashtag this and ha bring all that hashtag energy to work. Bring it to work. Jillian Sakovitz and Susanna Collins are the co-hosts of The Call Up, their terrific MLS podcast, which comes out every Tuesday in which you should check out. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks Thank for, you for having, having us, us, Grant. It's great to see you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Jillian Sakovitz and Susanna Collins and Kellen Acosta, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>